Hello, and welcome to another episode of Words of Wellness, the podcast where we consider the ways people think, speak, and write about wellness. I'm Daniel Anderson, and we're coming to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today, we're going to be talking about relationships. I'm going to introduce my guests. We have Nandan, Shanoa, Carter, and Ava with us today. So let's get started. Everything I've read uh, when it talks about wellness, um, thriving, well-being, points to relationships. I can't find one book that doesn't say relationships are important. Why do you think they're so crucial? Well, from the second you're born, I mean, you're born with a connection to somebody. Everybody needs relationships. Everybody has several types. I mean, there's romantic and friendships with your family and friends. And I don't know, I think it's it's crucial to, I don't know, just living and being connected to yourself and other people to have several different kinds of relationships in your life. I think our minds always like seek that kind of connection with somebody in some way, shape or form. And I think without it, we're not really like, I don't, it's, it's kind of like our well-being is based off of like how we connect with others. So I think it's just relationships are just a huge part of it. And going off of that, um, I know that I read about how like our mindset and our actions are based on those who we surround ourselves with, which is a big part of relationships. Yeah, I mean, I think humans are fundamentally social beings and Everything we've built is because we've managed to make great relationships with each other, which is why relationships are so important, right? And the absence of relationships is like a form of punishment if you look at like solitary confinement. I like that insight that, you know, it's actually not just that relationships are positive, but isolation kind of has a negative impact on people as well. And the point you made, Shinoa, about when you're a baby or when you're born, relationships become really important right away. I'm interested in that because I think um, if you imagine an entity that is as vulnerable as you could possibly be, you probably might picture an infant child. So is there some kind of a link between vulnerability and relationships? I mean, there's not really much of a choice when you're born. You have to be extremely vulnerable with everybody who's around you um, and let them kind of form relationships with you. Um, as you get older, you get more autonomy in that, and you get to pick who you want relationships with and what they're going to look like. Yeah, between, I think, the most potent example of a relationship is just that there's one immediately the second that you're born with whoever brought you into the world, even if it's, you know, not lifelong positive or anything. I think that's important to think about. We're born with at least one relationship. That parent-child relationship, I guess, is is really important but also different than other relationships in that you don't really have a choice uh, about your family relationships. I mean, you do have choices in how you participate with your family, but you know, when you're a child, you have the parent that you have and you don't get to factor in what are, what are my boundaries, what are my needs in this, in this relationship in some ways. When talking about like a mother-child relationship, there have actually been quite a few really interesting studies. So, uh, Gold, Goldman conducted like looked into what he calls motherese, which is how mothers talk to their child, and found that across languages it tends to be the same high pitched talking. And he also found that the tempo between like he has this he coins this term of tempo, which is how two people sync in conversations. And he finds that between a mother and a child, there's almost always a tempo, even in baby talk, which is nonsense to the rest of us. Very interesting. I um totally get that because you know when you have a child you 
you speak in this sort of like childish way or you have this um, baby talk mode that you go into. One question I have about that has to do with gender. Uh, you mentioned mother and child, and I wonder if the, the parenting does have more gender dynamics to it than other kinds of relationships. I, I don't want to exclude fathers from this kind of dynamic, but um, let me play a clip really quickly from David Brooks, who's also citing a study and refers to this as mother-child relationship rather than just parent-child. Babies are born to interpenetrate into mom's mind and to download what they find their models of how to understand reality. In the United States, 55% of babies have a deep two-way conversation with mom, and they learn models to how to relate to other people. And those people who have models of how to relate have a huge head start in life. Scientists at the University of Minnesota did a study in which they could predict with 77% accuracy at age 18 months who was going to graduate from high school based on who had good attachment with mom. So is it just mom or is mom a proxy for any parent in this situation? I think there is a pretty significant difference between mom and dad. I think there's experiments in psychology. There's one super famous one, the cloth monkey versus food monkey experiment. I think, do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like newborn monkey. They have these two fake mothers that they set up. One is covered in cloth and it's supposed to be like a physical comfort for the baby monkey. Um, and the other one gives um, the baby monkey food. And they found like overwhelmingly that the infant monkeys were way more attached to the cloth mother because it had that physical sense of attachment um, and comfort. And it's not just about like them giving you what you need to survive. It's like there's this natural, emotional, kind of spiritual attachment, I think, to a mother when you're born and like assuming, I mean, obviously there are exceptions where like your mother stays in your life, but I don't know, I do think that there is a difference between mother and father, even if it kind of sucks to say, you know? But, yeah. I, I don't think that there's absolutes in many ways. I'm sure there are many nurturing relationships between fathers and sons and daughters or what have you. But I am thinking and maybe moving a little bit away from science because this is just an intuition that I'm thinking about. But another big topic that comes up is the body and how our hearts and our breathing are such an important piece of our identity and, and our wellness in many ways. And I think there may be some connection there between unborn children and their mothers while they're in the womb. It's conceivable that that relationship doesn't start an hour one when the baby is born, but actually precedes that. One cool thing that I read about was the idea that in the womb, like human babies are extremely responsive to human speech, but almost nothing else. So you, in the womb, you, babies will react to like hearing people talking, but they won't react to much else, which is kind of cool. And then the other thing that, about that clip that I found interesting was this sort of predictive metric that they came up with, that if you have a really healthy relationship up to 18 months, you're probably going to have an easier time in life. Things are going to be much better. So um, I'm a little concerned in some ways because not everybody is fortunate enough to be in that percentile where your relationship is great. And not every parent probably fully appreciates how crucial these early days are. So what are some strategies then for either maximizing that opportunity in the early days or responding to, to it if you did not have that ideal early lifetime. 
I'm not really sure how you could like go about if the science is like true and you know, people who don't have attachment to their mothers at a young age do end up having a harder time being successful in life and I don't know it's kind of a really scary idea you have to learn how to like reduce that harm at a later age and I don't know it raises a lot of like interesting ideas for like adoptive parenting and what you might have to do to like get your child up to the level that they would have been at if maybe they had that strong attachment with their mother in the first 18 months of life. I think it might be something like there's still that little bit of empty space in the foundation of that relationship. Like if if the start of that relationship between like a mother and a child isn't like as positive as it, it should be to be part of that percentage that, you know, they could predict. But I think it's kind of a hard thing to counteract because if you don't, I mean, it's like you said, it's like a foundation. It's like when you're building a building, if you don't have a good foundation, then it's not going to be sustainable. That's obviously it's just a percentage of the time, but I, th- I think it's pretty pretty accurate and logical. I think one thing that like could help rebuild that foundation would be I think quality time um, would change that a lot. Just be spending time building relationships, even if it is later on, I think can be helpful in rekindling like what could have been there, even if it's later on, because it's still the same type of relationship. If you can spend time together getting to know each other yeah i'm kind of wondering whether this is a causation correlation thing unless i'm like misunderstanding the study they found that if like them they found a correlation but that that doesn't definitely like imply a causation so that could mean like i mean there is probably some many other factors that contribute to people's success so i don't think we can isolate like one as being the primary one uh, yeah i like that that's a healthy reminder nandan that um a lot of what we're talking about in these podcasts, we mention a study, but it's difficult to know how that study relates to other studies or the nuances of how it was put together. So, you know, you can't draw too stark of a conclusion based off of that one study. And then, Ava, the other point, I, I really like what you're saying there is that it's never a done deal. The other thing that we're learning about wellness and the brain is that things change. There's this idea of the plastic brain. And so, yeah, you're not set forever ever ideally is the is the the approach to take to these things i think so let's switch gears a little bit you all have been studying relationships and you've um, read some books about them what are some of the most interesting things that you discovered that you hadn't known already about relationships my book was specifically about romantic relationships i i think everyone else's were just about more general social relationships um so mine was pretty specific and it took the form of kind of trying to give advice and like these exercises that you can implement with people. I don't know. I found my my book Healthy Relationships by Rachel Chapman um, to be like a book long BuzzFeed article kind of where it was kind of just giving these it had some good foundations, but they were a little shallow like steps to fix your relationships. And I thought it was interesting the pattern of a lot of wellness books to I mean, we were talking about it earlier to tell you, like, this is it. Do this for this good result. But mostly the theme of this book is just, like, communicate. It's everything that you already know about relationships, but they hammer it in as hard as they can with ways to implement it. Um, like, signs your partner is cheating on you, stuff like that. Like, it's it was an interesting read for sure, but I didn't, I don't think I learned too much new information about wellness and relationships, but I do think that I don't know, it holds up with the same principles that we all know, which is like, treat your partner well, 
etc you know um my book also had a lot of like different exercises and guides throughout it and I'm just more negative and like toxic relationships in your life and like how to deal with those and so one of the big themes that um kind of prevailed throughout my entire book was boundaries and how to um, implement those in your life even when you don't necessarily know that you need them and so there was a lot of like sections where you could journal and then the next page would be um, giving you advice on like how to work through it and different exercises so it's kind of like each chapter ended with like a personal reflection and then like a summary or like um, exercises to put it into your life into effect which I thought was interesting because it was giving advice on things that I just necessarily didn't know were something like I should be focused on more and like really focusing on yourself in relationships more than necessarily like the two-way streets like prioritizing yourself and putting boundaries for yourself first I'd say mine was more about like the the brain chemistry behind relationships so my book was social um and a really interesting thing I noted was that our brains react to mental pain and pleasure the same way that they re- that we react to physical pain and pleasure. I just thought that was interesting because it kind of, you know, I think it relates to how in our society today we're like shifting more towards, you know, focusing on mental health and how uh, we can improve our mental health and things like that. Um, and, you know, in the past, it seems like it's been mainly a physical health thing. But I think that really hits at the point that, you know, our brains react similar ways for both physical and mental. So I just picked up on that and I just thought it was really interesting. A cool thing I found out from my book is that, like, he phrased it differently, but he essentially says that vibes are a real thing, which, I mean, you can detect. So we, according to um, Goldman, we have, like, two different circuitries in our brain and we have a high road and a low road. He calls it in the low road is for uh, create like detecting like base emotion without much thought. And he says that when this low road is operating, a relationship essentially comes down to tempo or synchronization between you and the person you're talking to. And if that synchronization is not there, you don't feel like you ha- you hit it off with this person. Just essentially saying that if a person you're talking to doesn't give off good vibes, that means that you are just not in tempo with them. I want to go back a little bit to the relationships, the personal relationships that you mentioned. And um, Shanoa, you were saying that your uh, reading felt a little tactical. It was giving some strategies that might be useful. And you were looking for a higher level concept to think about relationships part with partners. And then Ava, I think I heard you say that your book was recommending a focus on the self. I want to read a quote, and this is from a book from the 1970s. So this is one of these old hippie-based 1960s, 1970s, if it feels good, you should do it kind of books. But there's a quote in here about relationships. It says, a relationship based on love, as was said earlier, is one in which each partner allows the other to be what he chooses with no exceptions and no demands. It is a simple association of two people who love each other so much that each would never expect the other to be something that he wouldn't choose for himself. It is a union based on independence rather than dependence. I don't know, Nandan, if that overlaps with your idea of whether you resonate with someone, and it definitely connects on this idea of boundaries and focusing on yourself. So are we too focused on other people when it comes to relationships, often for it to be healthy? 
I would say so. Yeah, I think at least in a lot of the relationships of people our age, because we're like 18, 19, college age, um, people aren't really focusing on themselves. I think I know the conceptions of love we get are from maybe our parents if they're still together, like movies, media, stuff like that. And in those things, you don't really see people being like, oh, well, I'm going to focus on myself and like exercise and et cetera so that I can like be this person for this person. It's usually like I'm going to give everyone t- everything to this person. It's just I don't know. Once you actually enter a relationship, you realize that it's a lot more about both of you individually than um, the relationship the two of you have together. I think that also, like going along with that, another prevailing thing in my book was like it talked about how taking time for yourself isn't selfish, which I think is a concept that like kind of is hard to grasp because, like Chanel was saying, in order to be your best self in a relationship, like you really do have to make sure like you can in the end, always kind of have, like, be there for your own self before you're going to be able to help others and be there for others. And so I think knowing that taking time for yourself isn't a selfish thing is kind of hard for a lot of people to grasp. And I do feel like we're bombarded with messages that give a different kind of model. You should be selfless. And in these relationships where one partner is completely plugged in to the, you know, thinking or feelings of the other partner, how do we bring those together? Is there just kind of a balancing act? Are are those messages false? Or is this like a unicorn where you're ever going to find this relationship where you have that wonderful back and forth, but each partner respects their boundaries? Where do we find that unicorn? It'd be amazing if we had the answer to that question, like just just right here, and we all knew where to find, like the perfect relationship unicorn, everything. But realistically, it's like really difficult. I mean, a lot of times people don't realize like that it's not a bare minimum thing. You have to have a surplus of love and like things to give someone if you're already confident in yourself. And if that base of you being confident in yourself isn't there, then the relationship probably is not going to thrive long-term because you can't give that person what they need if you need to redirect that energy to yourself. Uh, one other cool thing is that like, we're really good at like de- deciphering when emotions are fake. So if you go into a relationship with like ill intentions or like if you're not like committed fully, it's probably likely that the other person can tell and that like if you fake emotions and other, the other person notices that makes you actively unlikable so although the advice of be yourself is really cheesy it's i mean the best way to operate and andan i wonder if that also applies in the in the reverse if you are projecting genuine emotions people can pick up on it probably so if you're doing something for someone else but you have a little bit of resentment or you feel like your identity is being pushed aside somehow, that probably comes through as well. And every relationship has a mix of, you know, sometimes you're a little grumpy or you're putting yourself aside. But yeah, as cheesy as it sounds, the more authentic you are, probably the stronger things are going to translate into a relationship. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So I'm wondering then this conundrum about, you know, keeping our boundaries, um, if we can maybe address that conundrum by zooming up a level and thinking about relationships more broadly. And one concept that comes up a bunch in relationships has to do with empathy. So let me play a a quick uh, clip and see if that gives us some, some thoughts about where we might go. 
So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. So that's Brene Brown uh, giving these four aspects of empathy. And one was perspective, trying to occupy others' perspectives. Another was not judging others. But talk to me about those um, strategies, I guess, and, and how maybe they take us to a way of having better relationships with people. I read this article once on the difference between empathy and sympathy, and it said like sympathy would be like if someone comes to you and your response starts with, well, at least you don't have it a certain way. I don't know if that makes sense why I just explained it, but, and so the reason like that's different than how someone would speak up empathy would be because you're kind of just comparing yourself and acting like you still might necessarily have it worse. You're not like really connecting with that person. Whereas someone speaking with empathy would like want to understand and like want to have the other person explain on a deeper level rather than just kind of downplaying their emotions. I have a lot in my book about empathy. I have a quote right in front of me that is about the difference between sympathy and empathy, which has kind of become like a, a hot button topic in wellness recently. <clears throat> um, people are constantly trying to list differences between the two and pretty much the main message of all of it is empathy is what you want and sympathy is something you kind of want to stay away from. Um, so in my book it says, so a sympathetic person feels sorry for the other person while an empathetic person feels what the other person is feeling. So obviously there's a difference between those two um, and people in the wellness field seem to find a pretty significant difference in like how genuine the emotions you're feeling are between sympathy and empathy and how much your emotions can actually help the other person when you express it to them. When talking about empathy, uh, like the way it occurs, or at least according to Goldman, is that you essentially mimic what the other person is feeling. So like using this, like it's not a conscious phenomenon, but like when you're talking to somebody, for example, and they express a certain emotion, they like use certain facial expressions. And we tend to mimic what the other person is seeing. And if this mimicry is genuine, it becomes empathetic. And when like the other person sees that you're like being genuinely empathetic, that tends to create a stronger bond, which is why empathy might be something that's become incredibly important. I uh, listened to a podcast the other day and it was talking about like how to really find like a, a, a true like long lasting friend. It was just like kind of a random topic that came up throughout. But there, you know, there's the, like the first two things like that were, you know, pretty across the board. But then the third thing that stuck out to me was somebody who is empathetic rather than sympathetic and they don't start you know, when you're going through something, their first thought isn't to tell you like what all they've been through and all that, because sometimes it's nice to have relatability, but the, it's, it said the true friend that you might find more long lasting would be somebody that's just, just listening at first rather than giving their personal story on how they did something or this and turned it on themselves. So I found that really interesting and pretty relatable to what we're talking about. I like that because I feel like it, one point, and I, maybe I'll ask you about this, 
it feels like maybe a lot of responsibility or a lot of pressure. So if we need to now have these healthy relationships and now we need to be empathetic. So someone's having some really difficult feelings. We've got to really occupy that perspective and, and connect and try to, to be there for that person. Is that a lot of pressure on all of us to, to try to facilitate that and how enthused or how, how ready are people to kind of pursue that and take those steps? I think it's a lot to put together at once. Um, but I, I think that some people are like, you know, good at different areas of like having relationships with others and then others like really struggle in like the, like they might struggle in like being empathetic rather than sympathetic, but they'll, you know, they'll always be there for you. It's so it's kind of finding the, uh, the area between that, like when it comes to finding people to have relationships with. I think there also is a good bit of effort required for empathy. You have to really be willing to put yourself in someone's shoes for like at least a, a minute to really understand how they're feeling. Um, I have a list of best ways to express empathy in my book. Um, I don't find them super like different from each other or like wildly radical, but they're pretty much kind of what Brene Brown was saying. Listen, um, open up to an extent, you know, don't be like, oh, well, like, I'm sorry you failed a test one time my grandma died, you know, like that's not really very helpful to anybody. Um, with uh, relationships and showing physical affection can be good for empathy, it says. Um, hug, arm around the shoulder, etc. releases oxytocin in the brain. Um, be very observant of what the other person, like their, um, the actions, expressions, and feelings of them, um, and the sight, sounds, and smells of everything around you. Um, it also says to avoid judging others, which feels pretty obvious, and then offer your help in whatever sense that you can, even if there's no actual way to help. There also is a list of um, responses to be avoided, which I find interesting, but they're the same kind of idea of like, don't tell stories or like give advice, minimize things, look for silver linings, um, or dodge any of the emotions they're sharing with you. So Yeah. This is all really helpful advice. I mean, I know I've gone through most of my life trying to fix people's problems when they bring them to me. And I think it's maybe it's a human tendency because you want to be helpful, but that is the exact opposite of what the person needs is what I'm hearing. Um, so maybe in some ways that takes the pressure off. If someone comes to you with a problem, you're not obligated to fix the problem. You're just obligated to be there and to say, I'm with you. Right, to, to listen, truly. If we're interested at all later, there's also a section of my book on tips to develop empathy. So that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, like what you have to have in you, like the amount of effort you have to put in to have empathy. And it's, you know, some basic ideas, some practical things, take interest in people, work as a volunteer, um, overcome prejudices, um, experiential empathy, which just is pretty much putting yourself in someone else's shoes to like a physical level. And... Yeah, and there's don't use any assumptions when you're practicing empathy. Don't assume anything. That's what Rachel Chapman tells us we need to do to to develop empathy in our own lives. Some some practices to do that, the tactics. One of the things that this isn't really the topic here, but it goes back to when we were talking about relationships and honoring yourself and your own boundaries is this idea of being empathetic and non-judgmental. If you bring up a mirror and apply it to yourself, it's probably a useful strategy in many instances because I think we often do that judging 
and do that kind of high criticism with our with ourselves in some ways. So is is there a way in which this relationship building actually kind of paradoxically is not for others, but is for our own individuality? I think hearing about other people's situations and then applying it to your own self, like even if you haven't experienced such a thing, you might like later down the road or something like that. So I guess like keeping that in the back of your mind and then maybe like how you could have helped them deal with it or seen them just deal with it by you being a listening person there for them is or can just be beneficial for you later on as well. So I would just look at the bigger picture. I'd say empathy is probably really good for um, there is like a long like lifelong fulfilling aspect of like I think you're just a better happier person when you have a developed sense of empathy that you practice like almost every day. So uh, let's switch gears a little bit. You all looked at four different books about relationships and tried to track a little bit about the ways that they talk about relationships. And in doing that, you made a dictionary that um, you could use to apply to other books and see how much kind of relationship type language they had in them. Can you talk about that a little bit? What did you discover when you were putting that dictionary together? Did anything surprise you? What, what can we take away from that? I was surprised about how much my book just talked about the brain and your, and your brain chemistry in terms of relationships because a lot of the other books seem to be like more like practical usages of like how you can improve a relationship or something like that. That's a lot of what Shinova's books seem to be like, but mine was pretty heavy on like the, the brain chemistry aspect and uh, neurology. I, I wish I had the dictionary right in front of me right now, but, it, um, oh, I do. I happen to have a copy. All right. Well, I'll read some to y'all. We have, number one, fittingly empathy, boundaries, conversation, life, narcissism, sense, safety, communication, gaslight, terms like this that are um, used to describe actions between two people. Um, there's also words like baby, child, crying. Um, so it attaches to every relationship that we've talked about so far in this podcast. I don't know, I think um, what surprised me a little bit about this is the like amount of like verbiage use of like the negative behaviors that people have to each other, like narcissism, gaslight, um, jealousy, contagious, or some toxic pain, abuse are all words that are on this list and thus are all included in all of our books. And yeah, I, I honestly expected some more positive language in the books that we'd be reading. And it was a little bit surprising. I mean, I suppose one of the books was about like toxic people, so I shouldn't be that surprised, but still I, I was expecting some more positive, like love intimacy kind of language rather than um, gaslight, toxic abuse, stuff like that. I was expecting less of that. I mean, what I found interesting was the presence of like words like baby and child, because going into this, I wasn't really expecting any of these books to talk about the mother-child relationship. And I don't know if that's specific to the books we've picked out or in general, like do, do relationship self-help books have like a lot of language regarding like mother-child relationships this might be something that you could look into. And then when you looked at all of the books, in terms of other books with some of the computational analysis that we've done, um, was there anything that jumped out at you through that process? So we did uh, produce some graphs and visualizations. We didn't find anything that was like wildly surprising, I think, with our groups in comparison to others. We 
obviously found a much higher um, like index of talk about relationships and social with all of our books compared to everyone else, but that was a given. Um, I don't know. Did you guys see anything in the visualization visualizations we we saw that were surprising? I think I'm not like a hundred percent on this, but I think we also found like a high instance of like the dictionaries that were created for books about body and thriving, which was kind of interesting. And two of our books were fitting more into the category of thriving, and two of the thriving's books were fitting more into our category relationships. So this seems to be like a, some form of fluidity between these types of books. Yeah, I was going to say something about there were, I think, two other books that were, like, really highly in the, like, relationship category in comparison to, like, two of our others. So there's a lot of overlap uh, among these categories. And when it comes to wellness, I guess people, as they write about it, they pull from these very well-known dimensions of wellness and kind of bring them together. So I imagine the relationship books are, as you said, talking about the brain, talking about the body. I'm talking about how healthy relationships lead to thriving and it all kind of comes together. Do you think if, if wellness books are just pulling from other like larger pre-established conceptions that other people in the wellness field have made, do you think that these books that are reading and new ones that are being produced right now, like do you think they have val- and this is kind of a little bit off topic, it's just, you know, where my mind went when you're talking about pulling from these things, do you think they're well like worth reading? And do they give you this new perspective or are they just copy paste from certain ideas try to put it together to a new radical thing and say oh this is actually how you think about wellness rather than like this so for mine it was like specifically like the empaths guide to dealing with narcissists in your life so I think that when you can kind of use other books to direct it towards a certain type of person is helpful because then sometimes like if you're reading a book and it's like got all these different ideas and different types of people it's hard to like figure out where you fit in that and so maybe like it wouldn't be as helpful in like trying to like fix relationships in your life or work on yourself because you don't really know where you stand whereas the more consolidated books can kind of be more of a guide for each individual person right and I'm more talking about the books that are way less science there's not really any brain chemistry stuff which isn't really what I was looking for but I, I guess I do find that in wellness Data like that makes it a lot more convincing of a read. So, I don't know, stuff like this where it, um, it was just someone telling you how to do stuff. There's like a little bit less authority there where I'm like, can you cite anything to tell me that I should do this exercise with my partner to like improve this? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great question. And I think it goes, uh, there's so many different threads that you can pull from it. One has to do with the commodification of wellness and how, you know, these books are written to sell and make money. So if the strategies for wellness are reasonably well known and there's five or six that keep coming up all the time, then, yeah, why can't we just write one book and it would be, you know, the the authorized guide to wellness. Wellness Bible. Yeah, exactly. Although that might be kind of a cynical approach to it because, you know, what resonates for one person might not resonate for another. So ideally, each of these books has kind of a different angle. And then over time, new science does emerge. So you, you know, fold that in to all of this. And like this quote I read from the book from the 70s, if you read further in that book, it's very dated and it's got a lot of gender constructs that we probably wouldn't be able to identify with 50 years later as well. So, 
you know, these books keep getting written, but it's, it's a good question. What are the core tenets and how do we get them in front of people? Right. I, I guess I'm also just being a little more cynical because like, we've read a lot of these. Um, so after you get kind of used to the formula and how they're going to talk to you about wellness, you, you start to be a little more like, okay, like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, someone who isn't reading wellness books for a class or I, I read them before I like took this class too. I think it definitely changes your perspective on the entire wellness movement a little bit once you get into the the money-making side of it and you realize a lot of people are kind of like writing these books just to make a buck but I don't know that's a little over cynical I think there are also a lot of really helpful like eh, original wellness books with good science it's just yeah a lot of people I think write these books for two reasons one is to help other people um, but others I someone who worked in the publishing industry related to wellness once told me that the authors write the book that they need. So sometimes I think people write these books because they are also experiencing some of these concerns and this is a healthy way to work through it by kind of looking at the information, capturing it. So even if it's been done before, it's unique to this person who's doing it again and has a kind of positive value in that way. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, thank you very much to my guests, Nandan, Shinoa, Carter, and Ava. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation about relationships. It seems like relationships start from the very beginning, not even when we're born, but even before we're born, as we start to hear the voices of those around us. And being authentic in relationships and practicing empathy, understanding that empathy is actually maybe maybe not as hard as you think it is you don't have to solve people's problems you just have to be there for people and that can go a long way and at the end of the day all of this is going to make us healthier happier and promote our wellness tune in next week for another episode thank you for listening <laughs>